0: Are you ready to take your leadership and your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate, evolve, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here's your host, Maureen Metcalf.
1: Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute, formerly Metcalf and Associates. I work with leaders and their organizations to identify the trends that will most likely disrupt their business and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I am delighted that with us today is Olivia parr uh, Olivia is a global thought leader, data scientist, and award-winning and best-selling author. And Olivia will tell you a little bit more about herself momentarily about this show as we face the volume of change that all of us are experiencing and will experience more in the future, for leaders, one of our challenges is how do we stay current and ahead of the trends, given that many of us are working a lot more hours than we would like and struggle to keep get everything done on a daily basis. So I wanted to create a show that exposes you to some of the trends that you may not have time to read about. And my hope is that you will hear something that changes your mindset and also something that will possibly change your behavior. And I think Olivia will deliver in spades on that. So what we know in the new knowledge economy is we need to use different skills and mindsets to drive our success. This means different cultures and systems for our organizations, and people need to feel comfortable showing up as their whole selves rather than a cog in a wheel. So, Olivia would say many of us are waking up. We yearn to make a difference. We use our innate gifts in ways that improve our lives and the lives of others. We want to be seen for who we are, not what we do. We yearn to connect, to be heard, to hear others. We ache to share our stories, our talents, and passions, and to make a positive difference in the world. If this resonates with you, then we have good news. Not only are you waking up, but corporate America needs all of us to wake up. The businesses that are most successful today and will thrive going forward are those that require us to show up fully and in deep connection with our hearts and the hearts of those we lead so that they can stay engaged and more productive. So, Olivia, will you tell us a little bit about yourself, including the book you just wrote?
2: Well, thank you, Maureen. It's just such a pleasure to be here. So, um, let me just give you a little bit of my history, because it kind of plays into where I am right now, and my new book. I, as a kid, I was very um, mystical into kind of, um, other worldly things and I also was so creative I had a hard time reading so I ended up studying math and it came easily I had a math professor uh, my grandfather was a math professor and so it was just sort of fun in our family so as I matured I was a spiritual seeker for a long time and still am but after about 20 years raising kids and being kind of a earth mom. I ended up going back, so I had a degree in math. I ended up going back to school and getting a master's in statistics and landed in a corporate job which felt like a foreign country. It was so um, antithetical to my world. It was just very fear-based and competitive. And yet, I was this the sole um, breadwinner in the family. My husband was Ill, and so I was now supporting everybody, and so I had to stay. And one of the things that I noticed was that when people were treated well, they did better. And also as a survival skill for myself, I ended up just trying to stay focused on my heart space and sharing from that space and connecting with people. And I really just did it to feel good myself, Okay, so fast forward. I was in this job. I did really well. I was hired to build predictive models for marketing credit cards, which many people may not like, but I was trying to find ways to avoid sending them to people that didn't want them. And so I built these models and was very successful. And then I got invited to speak at conferences. I ended up writing a a book in 2001 that was published called Data Mining Cookbook that was a global bestseller on how to build predictive models. So now I was on the national scene or international scene really speaking at data conferences and I also left that particular bank and went and worked for a couple other companies that ended up doing a lot of mergers and acquisitions and I just saw... The, how the emotional needs were not being met by people. So the very talented people would leave and go get better jobs, and then the company, their surviving company, whatever shape it was in, would be left with people that maybe weren't as ambitious or as talented. And it just hurt the companies, but the companies, the leaders didn't understand this. So I started doing research, and when I, um, well, actually, I was doing a, a keynote. At a conference, I was invited to do a keynote and I asked if I could talk about some of these human competencies that I felt were needed more. And you kind of alluded to this, Maureen, that with change, um, we really have to tap into more of our right brain, our connected emotional skills to survive because things are just too complex and changing too quickly to always count on our left brain to guide us. And so At this keynote, I talked about uh, connection and compassion and caring and um, some of the qualities that I felt were needed. And this book was called Business Intelligence Success Factors, and I kind of named it to match the conference. And then the person that was heading up the conference invited me to write a book on the topic. So I published a book in 2009 with Wiley called Business Intelligence Success Factors, and it was sort of an academic Uh, argument for treating people well and then a few years later I got invited to write another technical book and at this point I knew that this current book that I just published was was ruminating, I needed to write it but I, I was worried about coming out as a person just advocating for love because my new book is called Love at Work and I actually do have research in it that shows that companies that treat people well do make more money. And then I go into my story and how I came to realize this and what it meant to me. So um, so in 20 so I knew this book was something I was supposed to write for many, many years. And I got invited to write a, a technical book in 2014 and I ended up publishing that. It's a very, very specific book for SAS Institute. But I figured it would establish me as a left-brain credible thinker so that when I went to that same group and said, oh, by the way, you need to love each other and love your employees and your customers and your competitors and your community, that they couldn't blow me off as some woo-woo flake because they were using my technical books. So that's you kind know, of I okay had the same, I, ahead, I had the sorry. same
1: concerns about the, the whole love at work when I got your book until I saw your hardcore quantitative background, the... That I come out of big consulting, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and Accenture, and we don't do love at work. So (laughs) I'm, right, that's that's something those other people do, or we don't do it and call it love. Not that we don't care about it. And I've been gone for almost 20 years, so maybe that's different now. But when I was there, certainly people cared deeply about their employees, but we didn't, we used different language. Mm -hmm. So... I'm curious about the premise of the book. You've alluded to it, but can you give us a little bit more?
2: Sure. So I understand what you're saying, and I think it's true. I think people do express caring, and, and the way I define love for the book is caring, compassion, and connection. And certainly that does exist, and I think it's a natural thing. What I think is needed is this to be modeled from the top. So in my book, I give lots of statistics about companies that were measured in those ways and how much better they did. Maybe not in the first year, but starting in year two and three, and then for much better over five, ten years. And then I actually get the second chapter which is a bit research-based as well, talks about how we are evolving as humans and how our brains are different. And there's a lot of discussion about millennials and people bemoan the fact that they want jobs that matter and make a positive difference. And mm-hmm. I, I say, this is a good thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, what I get into then in the middle of the book, which is why I think it's, it's new, is that I want to invite people to step up and show their emotions and be vulnerable and authentic and open-hearted and that doesn't mean you're not a good you can still debate your position very strongly but you do it in a respectful way and it's not seen as us versus them or that there's a limited pie that we can if we all give our best and care about each other that The whole organization will benefit and I think families benefit and communities benefit and eventually the planet will benefit. So in the middle part of the book, I give my kind of share my story about how I came to this and then some techniques for showing up with an open heart and being strong because it's easy to do that in some settings, but in the corporate world, you have to really do your own healing work in order to be vulnerable and still survive, in my opinion. (laughs) If that makes Okay, sense. so
1: several things you've said that I want to ask about. Sure. So for people who come out of environments like me, who might use all of the same, uh, might be open-hearted, might care about their people, but we just don't use words like love. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to f- that part of our audience for whom the book would be hugely valuable, but they will probably never go to a- the bookstore without listening to this conversation or another and pick up something that says love at work.
2: <laughs> That's true. So my hope is that the invitation that you read early on will inspire younger people because I feel like it's it's less of a problem for millennials and, and some of the younger mm-hmm. generations. Um, I may never reach those older, hardened uh, corporate types and I kind of have to i'd love to, but I don't know if that is going to be possible if they have any interest, I would actually recommend they read my earlier book because it's it's much more of a academic approach and doesn't mention the word love but it's sort of the same information it has more science in it about quantum physics and evolutionary biology and how we we're evolving um, and so in this situation, I do feel so um Another point there is that love is being used a lot more in marketing now. So it's not such a foreign word anymore. So we've got Subaru uses love and Southwest Airlines uses love and uh, Sachi and Sachi. There's all kinds of companies that are just explicitly saying, we love you. We love our customers. We want to be loving people in business. So that's really how I'd have to answer that, that people that are in the top accounting firms might never buy it. That's true. But I've been guided to reach to people who are, you say, like me 25 years ago, kind of in the corporate world and wanting and feeling hungry for more wholeness. And not feeling like it's safe to do that. And now I'm saying, is it? it's not only safe, but our companies need us to do it. And it might not be an easy thing at first, but I think it's worth it in the long run to to talk this way and open our hearts. Does that answer your question?
1: It, it does. And I, I think it's time to get a break. I would encourage our listeners to be thinking about what language works for you. And again, I'm coming from my own bias and fear of using the word, although all of your concepts a hundred percent resonate with me. And I want to get into during the break or sorry, after break a little bit of the neuroscience for people who may have the same, have grown up with the same bias that probably both of us did mm. because if change also comes from the top how do we connect with folks who are in those senior most positions and not necessarily change language but certainly change how how we continue to run our businesses and and To your point, given the volume of change, we have to look at doing things differently so that our organizations can thrive, so they can be profitable, so that all the people who work for us can continue to have jobs and support their families, so that our customers are well served. All of that stuff needs to be attended to. So we will be right back from break.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Metcalf and Associates is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership in business. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, Metcalf & Associates has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com today. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call one 472 5790 That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program.
1: Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. We are talking to Olivia about Love at Work and wanted to talk a little bit more about the neuroscience. Again, coming from the environment I did, I was early on reading and probably having the same yearnings you did and then was pretty much told because of the time of evolution in our world or whatever, that just wasn't what was happening in in the business world at that point in time. You know, fast forward 25 years Things have changed, and part of what's changed is neuroscience. So can you share a little bit about what you're finding from the hard data of science?
2: Sure, and let me just preface it by saying that we kind of alluded to this, that we need to do more, um, lead differently, and I just want to say that because of the complexity, the old... Top-down leadership style of of command and control—it's too inefficient. With changes happening so quickly, we need to empower people at all levels of a organization to be thought leaders and uh, come up with solutions. And so, what I'm finding in the neuroscience—and so for sure—if you want your employees and you know your downline of workers to be um, creative and innovative and proactive they need to feel safe and so one of the things that is shown in the neuroscience is that when someone and this was shown with a, a boss to a employee to one of his direct reports that when they felt compassion for that person they were hooked up to monitors their neurom sorry uh, mirror neurons synced up and they could measure it so we're having an effect on people through the energetic field when we feel compassion for them and there's also an effect on just going into your heart and feeling what you could call love for someone or compassion or caring that they can feel that 50 feet away where they may not even see you mm-hmm. when they're that close so you know i'm
1: working with a, a group right now um athletic organization and they're under a lot of stress and One of the things we talked about is the idea, exactly what you're pointing to, that if I walk into a room and I'm highly stressed and anxious, people feel it, physiologically feel it. And one of the antidotes is this activity, there's a concrete activity, right, that people can do Mm -hmm. of compassion or care or love or appreciation before they walk into a meeting that people can actually physiologically feel.
2: Absolutely. And I would say that one of the most difficult things is to have compassion for ourselves. And so if that's the case, if I were walking into a meeting and I was very anxious and I didn't want that um, energy to permeate the room and affect others, I might take a moment and just go into my heart and just say to myself, I'm doing my best. I'm really trying my very hardest to do the right thing and then be easy on ourselves because I think we can all be most critical to ourselves and that creates a lot of anxiety. And one of the things I do mention in my book are some of the techniques for actually getting old traumas and beliefs out of our body that are often buried in our subconscious and affect us at times so that we might be more critical to ourselves because we have old messages playing from our childhood about, you know, not being good enough or being stupid or all these things that we hang on to and maybe don't even know we're doing that. And Mm -hmm. so, and so by um, being, sometimes our anxiety comes from tapping into those old traumas or beliefs and by at least being easy on ourselves and loving ourselves or being compassionate, forgiving of ourselves, um, that can really shift our energy. So I encourage everybody to to do that. So, so
1: you said, and let me play this back and see if I can get it in a way that I could actually do. So I, I do happen to walk into meetings feeling pretty anxious and um, embarrassingly more often than I would want to admit. (laughs) Um, And so one of the things I try to do is take a breath. And especially if it's with someone that I have found challenging to to remind myself why I'm meeting with them, what I appreciate about them, because it's easy to say, "Oh my God, not again!" That that whatever <laughs> fill in the blank, um, I bet that person's going to fill in the blank and do whatever that annoys me, rather than saying, "All those things are true, and this is why this person is in the organization, and they're different, and and this is the value they add, even if difficult." Right here, here is the goodness in this individual person. Is that what you're talking about?
2: Yeah, um, actually, I would even take it a step further. So, if if it were me, I would um, go into my heart. And so, let's say this person's name is Joe or something. I might even say, um, "I love you." joe and it's not that you forgive or or don't care about how they act or all those annoyances are fine but if you think about universal unconditional love we can give that to anyone and um it interestingly what i've discovered is that it not only calms me down but it calms the other person and i've seen it have an effect on interactions and i've heard this from other people I'd love to do some more deep research in it, but I really feel it. And then just to add to that, there are these points, um, uh, like right under the collarbone maybe two inches on either side uh, that are called the sore points. Some people call them, they're, they're, they're energy points. And if you put your hand there, like your thumb and your middle finger or something, it, it will tap in and release anxiety from the body or energy from the body. And if you do that, and then maybe just say, I love and accept myself. And things like that, the, all these things can help to dissipate bottled up energy and fear and anxiety at, prior to any meeting or, you know, really anything that you're endeavoring. Does that make sense? It does. And,
1: and that the piece about self is so important. And again, the it's the one that I often overlook for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and kind of the joke about it, it's easy to feel compassion for other people at a distance Um, since I live in my own body and I know when I look in the mirror, every thing I've done that was silly or ridiculous, or I wish I hadn't done, um, it it is harder to have acceptance and compassion for myself than it is for people I care about. Yes. I think that is
2: the human condition in many (laughs) ways, Mm -hmm. and especially I think because our our consciousness is evolving we're even more sensitive to these thoughts and how they can trip us up and there's more in the book about that uh the technique about clearing but you can do that so, so sometimes I'll be in a meeting let's say and I will say something and I'll think oh god I could have said that better or I wish I'd said it differently or I wish I hadn't said it at all and I'll immediately put my thumb and middle finger across you know into the two points And I'll just say, even though I said that thing, I totally love and accept myself, and I'm present in my body. And then many times that will release that charge. And there's a little bit more to that saying um, that I won't get into here, but once you say it enough, then you can just say that. You can just say, I totally love and accept myself, and I'm present in my body. And it can take away the negative feelings. And I theorize that it actually makes everybody forget what I said. So I don't know (laughs) if that's true, but I act as if. And it seems to work.
1: (laughs) Back to that thing of how we feel. If if, from a physics perspective, we're particles vibrating and those, the vibration of upset and anger is different than that of love. And we know this from a a science perspective, people would feel it. Mm -hmm. You know. The other thing that resonates is the idea that I am present in my body.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: for me, so often, especially if I'm obsessing over the stupid thing I said and how how that's going to impact my reputation in the world, and it's so easy to go into, you know, something I did in a split second and now my career's over. I do that less. <laughs> yeah. but you know there there were points that I would be convinced that I would, you know be fired and never work again. Um, but that, if I can release that fear and come back and be present in the room, then I can engage in the conversation. Otherwise, you know, this is why we meditate, right? It's so easy to get abducted by a thought and yes. and then be not even engaged in the conversation. I'd be better off doing email than getting stuck in some of these uh, loops, mental loops.
2: Absolutely. And the part about I'm present in my body, the woman that developed this, Julie Roberts, this, she calls it clear method. And it was um, clearing limited energetic acupressure release, I think it is. And it's uh, a mixture of some other techniques, That but she simplified it. But one of the reasons she added that part, I'm present in my body, is because we tend to leave our bodies emotionally, <laughs> energetically And so it's really important to stay in our bodies. That's where the trauma gets lodged in, in our energy body, our particles, you know, our energetic particles. And then as we tap in through the points on the chest and pull it in, then we can totally release it and have it, you know, be gone forever. And other things may come up, but at least that's not sort of hijacking our calm and taking our ability away to be present in the meeting.
1: Yeah. You know, I want to tie this to another interview we did. Is there such a thing as a level a level five organization? So Collins, good to great and level five leaders. Mm-hmm. And we talk about from an organizational perspective, similar things. And as leaders to be truly those that, that the data would suggest are most effective, we have to have this ability to be present during things that feel incredibly uncomfortable, whether whether I have to engage in a difficult conversation or if the difficult conversation is just happening in my head, (laughs) which it it is on occasion, um, knowing how to manage myself in a way that allows me to continue to be engaged and productive is Mm -hmm. really, I think, a rare skill.
2: I agree. I do. And I think, that one of the things we're seeing evolutionarily is that our brains are more connected now. So I think back maybe um, 50, 75 years ago, people's brains were much more compartmentalized and more men were in the workplace. And we know that the male brain has a, a, a smaller connection between the left and right brain. And it's funny, this as is an aside. People say, oh, well, are you championing, championing um things for women and I say no we need men we need the divine feminine to show up which to me is this heart this um, this sort of more right brain connected piece but that's one of the things I've seen in the science is that our brains are are more connected left and right so we can get tripped up more easily by our emotions and that's why it's nice to have these techniques um, rather than suppress our feelings and our feelings are needed because it's really our intuition that is needed to put all the pieces together. So in contrast to 7,500 years ago, we have so much data coming at us. And um, oh, I'm trying to think of her name, but Rebecca, uh, uh, there's a woman, Costa, Rebecca Costa, who has a show on Voice America. She wrote a book called The Watchman's Rattle, and it's really worth reading because it talks about um, how the most amazing ideas come through maybe really tense situations and that we're tapping into some sort of a part of our brain or maybe even pulling it in from the superconscious, you know, to get a solution. So these are all things that are enhanced by us being in our body, being present and not having our emotions overriding, but being able to blend the emotion with the left logical brain, which we absolutely need as well. Does that make sense? It, it
1: does, and I want to amplify what you just said uh, because it seems so important. In times where we can't just rely on best practices because we're in situations that haven't been solved for before, yeah, we're having to solve for them or solve them. Some of the solution is I have to change, and the data isn't always available. My intuition is, and my and sometimes my feelings are way out of whack but mm-hmm. I can take the feeling, I can take the intuition, and then I can look for the data to come up with a best solution. It, you know, there's a reason it's called the sixth sense, right? That, yeah. <laughs> that there is value, but only if we blend both data and intuition, in no way am I advocating, and nor do I think you are, that I just go on feeling for everything.
2: Exactly. Right. It's that balance. Absolutely. And one of the Situations that Rebecca Costa mentions in her book, The Watchman's Rattle, is this Apollo 13, where the guys that were stranded theoretically in space had a few pieces of, tech, of equipment, and then the guys uh, on the ground took those exact pieces of equipment and went into a room and just got into this sort of logical but intuitive, blended with intuitive space and and came up with a solution and told them how to do it and they were able to come back to Earth. So there's times when, and I bet you a lot of people have had that experience, where their intuition just gives them a brainstorm and they go, oh, that's the solution. And something to keep in mind, too, is that this can't be forced. It has to, so when you look at the way the brain works, the left brain is very linear and logical. The right brain is more pattern-based and it's something, so when I was saying people have had this experience, like, have you ever been really working hard to solve a problem, and then you finally give up and you go for a walk or you take a nap or you're in the shower and the solution comes to you. So that's the right brain coming in and uh, you know, putting a pattern together and tapping into your intuition. And I think it was Thomas Edison when he was inventing the light bulb, he had either a spoon or a bowl of, of marbles or something where he would sit in a chair and intentionally take a nap. And then when he would go into a deep sleep, it would fall, whatever he was holding would fall and wake him up. And then he'd have another thing to test because he knew it was through the dream state that he would get his ideas. So that's, anyway.
1: And that's interesting. Cause like for me, it's showering and walking, but I have yeah. to when I was writing, especially, and I walk late at night often because I don't have my 10,000 steps early. So I would, you know, work, um, turn off at about 10, go walk for about an hour and then I would go back and it, it seemed like I was recharged with new ideas. It wasn't good for my sleep pattern, but it was really productive. And the other, and I hear a lot of people say this, when I'm showering, there's something about the way the water hits the back of your neck or something. I'm not sure. Oh, that's From a scientific perspective, it's actually the, the impact of water on your neck. I, I couldn't cite a source, so I could be completely off. But lots of people. I have heard
2: that. Interesting.
1: Sorry. But how often have you heard people say, "I took a shower and I got the answer"?
2: Oh, many times. In fact, I've done a lot of speaking on how the brain works, and. Almost any, when I ask people how many have had that experience, like half or two thirds of the audience will raise their hand. And I think too, in the shower, it's like one time we're not supposed to be productive so we can just oh, let our awesome. mind wander. But I love the idea of the warmth on the back of the neck. I might check that out. Cool. So we are going to get a break.
1: And for our listeners, something to think about as, as we are uh, um, regrouping and you're listening to commercials is... Where do you disconnect from your logical mind and allow intuition to come forward? We'll be right back.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com today. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
1: Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. You are with Maureen Metcalf and Olivia Parr-Rood, and we're talking about love at work. Uh, Olivia, during the last segment, you talked a little bit about gender and specifically the question of are you advocating for women's leadership? And and that's a, one, it's a tricky topic, so I'm careful about how I speak about it, but it's also an important topic what I heard you saying is men need to access the defined feminine. We're not saying men are bad, women are good, or men have these abilities and or women have abilities and men don't. What I think I heard you saying is there are capacities that are traditionally assigned to women that are also important for men to use. Is that correct?
2: Yes, it is. And one of the things that I have found in my research is that successful CEOs, they might not say they have intuition, but they often say they can trust their gut, which is really the same thing. And so there's a lot out there in the culture about women need to take over, and um, it's women to the exclusion of men, and there's there are times, I think, where women need to be nurtured by the as women in a group, and maybe it's not appropriate for men, but in most cases, and I've seen this, I went to the World Changing Women's Summit last year, and there were men there. The men want women to be strong, and many successful men have a well developed feminine. So, as women, we need our well developed, so I'll say divine masculine and the divine feminine, those are the two polarities that if in balance really lead to the best outcome and I was if you read my book you'll learn that I was on my own from a very young age and my mother so my father died when I was five in a plane crash and Mm -hmm. I just had two older sisters so we had a very feminine family but my mother went to work. So I really kind of lost both parents when I was five. And I was on my own a lot. My mother was a very successful businesswoman. So I never had any doubt that I could do that. But it really allowed me to develop a strong masculine. And I had to work myself at bringing in the feminine. And I'm still struggling with partnering with people and and creating an organization where i trust people to get my back and there's many more people now showing up to do that that i trust but for a long time i just felt like okay if i don't do it myself it's not going to get done right or whatever you know and that's a very male way of looking at things and so what i'm saying too yes is that the there's this divine feminine that hasn't been as nurtured and that needs to come into it's, it's maybe a little easier for women, but it needs to be developed and nurtured in men as well. And there are many wonderful men who have that, and we probably could name some that we know that um, you know maybe we work with or in our families or whatever that have that loving, nurturing side. And that needs to be championed and uh, encouraged so that more men feel safe. And maybe part of it is saying the word love, right? (laughs) That that they can, you know, say, okay, that may be something I'll put in my language at work. (laughs) We'll see.
1: You and I share a similar background in that if I was feminine, and I'm not sure I ever was, it it was... um, taught out of me or whatever one says. Mm -hmm. I was also the kid who climbed trees rather than did traditionally girl activities and that, and often the work environments where I thrived, I was the only woman in the room Mm -hmm. and that was true for decades. So for some of us, for some of us as women, we also have more male traditionally male characteristics and I have a business partner who has a much more loving and kind, I think, qualities on the surface than I do. Not that I don't care, because that wouldn't be true at all, but I I think I show it less than he does. Interesting.
2: Mm-hmm. So you kind of probably balance each other in a nice way there.
1: I think we do. I, now he may say something different,
2: but <laughs> no, I think we do. And I think we selected
1: each other for that balance because as an organization, we have the the characteristics that are more traditionally male, more traditionally female. and and he is in no way effeminate. He's a former CFO. Um, he's run organizations as a CEO. He's he is not a wimpy dude. But he is comfortable talking about love in a way that I probably would not be interesting.
2: Yeah. Wow. So he's probably very balanced. It sounds like. Um,
1: That's been my experience of him. And as we think about what the leaders need to look like going forward, what we advocate is there are a set of traits. So, again, if you go back to Collins and level five leadership, mm-hmm. and not that we're mapping everything against that, but directionally, if you look at those traits that we believe are appropriate for leaders of the future some are more traditionally assigned to men and some are more traditionally assigned to women Mm -hmm. and and it seems like what we will require in the future is leaders to have and and i think you said this access to divine masculine and divine feminine in Mm -hmm. in one human being
2: yes absolutely and i i would argue that that's been true in most successful leaders going, you know, even going back a ways, that the ones that were really good, and maybe like John Chambers, he was uh, CEO of Cisco, and he was command and control. And then one day he was sitting in a meeting with all his direct reports, all these brilliant people, and he realized that they had better ideas than he did. And so he just decided to give him a goal and said, okay, you guys figure out how to get there. And then he just could direct really less and less because he was inviting people to show up and so he was and I think that's a feminine quality that we share power and collaborate more and again and men always may have math be easier or women may always find nurturing easier but recognizing it and seeing that the most successful people have more of a balance there I think is really critical
1: You know, it's interesting that you picked collaboration because that's one of our seven competencies is innately collaborative. And the one that would be more traditionally male is a 360-degree thinker, much more analytical. And it seems like we need both in Mm -hmm. our leaders now. We can't have one analytic and one collaborative. They have to, we as one human being have to, Demonstrate both qualities.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting that you use analytic. I would think the uh, the polarity to collaborative would be competitive. Uh, and maybe that is the same. As
1: being analytic. Uh, Actually, I wasn't talking about the polarities as much as just of the seven competencies. Oh, sorry. Great. Okay. Yes. So what would be traditionally male? We think of men being more math and science oriented, which Mm -hmm. is interesting because you were a math person and I was an economics math kind of person. so. (laughs) So we don't fit the stereotype of women. And yet, I assume we're both women um <laughs> yes. and that's enough On <laughs> sorry i don't want to go <laughs> up on on too much of that but um so in your book back to the book yeah uh, you talk about the love at work method
2: mm-hmm. what is
1: that and and to the point that we talked earlier about concrete practices people could take away let's go back to a couple more ideas that we can share with listeners that they could do
2: okay So the love at work method was something that I kind of saw a pattern in my own life and my own healing journey, which I share in the book. So we have to love ourselves first. So the first step is love all of yourself. And that is when we make mistakes and, you know, when we don't feel our best and all that. And then the O, it spells the word love. So, you know, O is own your superpowers. So these are your gifts, the things that come naturally to you. And then V is visualize your inspired goal, so this could be perhaps some people might call your sole purpose, I call it the inspired purpose, but maybe what we came in this lifetime to to do or be, and for me, I feel like it is this, that I've done lots of, I've accomplished many things, but for me, this feels like why I was born to share this and you know, I had to go through the math world to Gain credibility for people that might not listen to me otherwise. And then the E is engage with your tribe. So when we have our, our goal, and this could be in a corporate setting or as an individual or as a small business, um, then we want to see, like, how can we get out there and share? And that's kind of where I am now is engaging with the world with my new uh, sort of realizations and techniques And so some of the exercises I give are, like in the self-love piece, it's to maybe notice where you do criticize yourself, and then that exercise I mentioned about being forgiving. And even just something that uh, is difficult for people, it's a very interpersonal thing, or I'm sorry, just a personal thing, is to look in the mirror at yourself so I would encourage listeners to just try this. Look at yourself in the mirror and say, I love you. And see if that's easy or difficult to do, because that could be a clue to where you need to start with um, you know, loving yourself. And then finding your superpower, I would just say, notice where you lose track of time. What are you doing? What, what are you engaged in when you feel like you're in flow? That's a clue to where your gifts are. And then maybe... Uh, You're finding your purpose would be think about things you really care about, what you want to champion in the world, a clean environment or fairer politics or whatever. You know, that might be part of your purpose. And then engaging in your tribe is just start out talking to people, sharing, exploring some of these thoughts you're having and these ideas you're having for ways to show up differently that feel more in line with your purpose and just get feedback from people and um, enjoy that part because that can be really fun.
1: So since thank you for sharing that and hopefully our listeners will hear something that they haven't done or haven't done as fully uh, that they can. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to say I love you in the mirror but I do have to try it just to see what happens. (laughs) Um, The you mentioned you're doing what is your life purpose. So if if this book and if this phase of your life are brilliantly successful, what impact will you make?
2: I feel like it might have a huge impact on bringing healing to the planet. So I know that sounds like a big goal and I may not live to see it, but my theory is that corporations are the most powerful entities on the planet, many are larger than most nation states. And if those leaders get this clue, like, oh, I could be making more money if I was more compassionate and caring. Okay, let me look into this. And they may not even get there. Maybe the love word love will turn them off. But if they open a little bit and it just takes a few to start changing the way they do business, I think it could have a huge impact on the planet. So that's my dream. (laughs)
1: Wow. That, and, and that's, it is amazing to have that aspiration and be putting it into action and sharing it with people. Well, thank you.
2: <laughs> and not being attached to what happens is the key. Oh
1: <laughs> well, yeah, that's the other, right, that we don't always get what we have.
2: Or maybe I won't live to see it. But I love, you know, I'd love to see some, some changes.
1: <laughs> yeah. What's the biggest change you'd like to see?
2: Uh, Just maybe more people mentioning love, not just in their branding, but in their actions in business. And I do see compassion showing up a lot on my Facebook page, Love, Make It Your Business. I share articles where there's uh, a lot more compassion being shown. And I think someone was brought in at Microsoft recently to change the culture. It was very backstabbing and all this. And he handed out the um, nonviolent communication book to everyone. So that's a big uh, start, I think, to see this coming into huge corporations is ways to treat people better, you know, t- treat each other.
1: Sachin <laughs> an Ndeli, I'm not sure I'm saying his name right, I think is the CEO of Microsoft.
2: Mm. And,
1: and his book um, speaks more to this culture also about how we treat one another. Mm-hmm. I, I um, it, it is actually a really interesting read. And he... And, and you know what? I don't want to go into what I remember because my memory is faulty enough. But it's absolutely an interesting read and feels very connected to what you're talking about. Oh,
2: great. I'll check that out. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. And thank you for what you've written. Do you have any closing comments for the next minute? And then I'll wrap up.
2: So I just want to encourage people to think about this. And, I'll, and a way to maybe invite you is to just think about how you feel for someone in your family that you love a child a pet a spouse a parent and know that that feeling can be felt for people that maybe you're angry with and it again it doesn't mean there isn't an issue but it can really help heal the situation so maybe play with that a little bit and I'd love feedback if you uh, choose to read my book you know email me let me know how you like it thank you
1: so what's your email address so someone could give you feedback?
2: Olivia at oliviapr.com
1: Olivia at oliviapr.com. Correct. Perfect. Correct. I, I love the idea that that and i you know it's easy again to be compassionate to people I don't know who never offend me or upset me. It's hard to be have kind thoughts when I'm angry. Mm-hmm. So it, it does seem like a brilliant practice. And the importance you mentioned of when I feel it, other people feel it from me. Mm-hmm. So I need to clean it up so that I can clean up the relationship. It doesn't mean the offense is forgiven or overlooked or any of that, mm-hmm. but it gives us the space to move forward and resolve yes and it so, does
2: have an impact on the other person in a big way even at a distance just know that this is how the quantum you. world the quantum world works I love the science behind it so we are,
1: are going to thank you thank our listeners I would also love feedback either info at Metcalf com or innovative leaders driving thriving organizations on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening, for investing your time. And I hope you heard something or a lot of things from Olivia's book and her conversation that you can put into practice and that you buy the book and continue to practice well beyond our show. Thank you for joining us.